Hey everybody, this is David Chudik. Uh, welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Wealth Podcast. As you know, I am a certified financial planner with Parallel Financial. And before we get started, I would love for you to check out our new website, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com. You can see all of our uh, previous episodes and you can learn a little bit, a little bit about me and our firm. So today we are talking to Amy Carrick and Amy has an interesting, interesting role. And, uh, what she does is she is a certified daily money manager. We're going to talk about what that means and who she serves and, and what role she plays into, uh, uh, society's most vulnerable segments. So we hope that you enjoy this episode and here we go. This is the Weekly Wealth Podcast with certified financial planner, David Chudik, where we discuss the wealth-building mindsets and tactics that can help you to build and maintain wealth for you, your family, and your business. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Wealth Podcast, where we talk about the mindsets, the tactics, and the strategies to help you to build and maintain wealth. So today we have a really, really interesting guest, um, Amy Carrick, and she's going to talk about something that we've not yet spoken about uh, on the podcast, uh, about being a daily money manager and what that means and, and who she helps. And it's a really important role that she plays for a segment of society. So, um, hey, Amy, how are you? Um, did you have a good weekend? We did. We did. Got to see my daughter from college, so that was nice. Yeah, yeah. What what year is she in, and, and where does she go to school? She's a freshman at USC. Okay, so USC, are they in in-person classes, at least for now, or are they all online? She's about 60-40 in person. Okay. How does, um, how does she feel about about that? Is that a positive to, to, to college freshmen, or are they kind of bummed out that they're missing out on a little bit of the college experience? It's her normal. She doesn't know. Well, that's that's I mean, true. You yeah. know, you know what you hear, but um, she's kind of a homebody anyway. So she's not one of the wild ones that is missing out on certain things. I have um, a a college professor buddy, and and uh, you know he frankly told me that you know everything's open book, um, and and it's not intended to be open book, but everything is open book for better or for worse. But if you think about it, if the point of college is to teach and to learn. Maybe having the opportunity to look up answers is not the worst thing ever. I don't know. And I guess if you're too lazy to cheat and look up answers open book, then maybe, maybe that's a whole, uh, a whole different, uh, different situation. So, well, cool. So you are a daily money manager. And um, what is that? And uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into that, uh, that line of work. And, and let's just start with kind of the basics. Okay. Well, being a daily money manager is actually a national organization, American Association of Daily Money Managers. Um, and you can call yourself a daily money manager without being a member, um, but that is typically where that phrase comes from. I actually took it to another level and I am certified, which means I have um, more experience, I've passed their tests, um, so it proves out a certain level of knowledge. And uh, I felt that was important to be able to do that, um, partly because of my having come from a very different background. Uh, most people that do this work are in their second or third career. And my undergraduate degree was computer science with an economics minor. I also have a master's in finance and marketing. And 
uh, a lot of other mm, supplemental courses over the many years um, that I've been working. So I came to this role about 11 years ago um, when I was laid off from a high tech you know, technology company. And at that time, I didn't want to go back to corporate America. And so I had the finance in my background. I had some bookkeeping in my background. I had some IT in my background. And all of that meshed well together to take me to this career. And so I work with um, a variety of clients. I've got a three-year-old client and I lost a 106-year-old client a year or so ago. So it runs the gamut on age. The real key on what we do as an organization, um, because there's more than one of me working in this company, what we do is take care of basically balancing people's lives. So we do take care of primarily the financial side and we don't conflict with CPAs. We don't conflict with financial planners. We're not their banker. We're not their insurance broker. We do the daily stuff. And that's the, that's the hard things, right? Because if the electric bill doesn't get paid, um, you know, if there's money to pay it and it just doesn't get paid, that's, that's a problem or late fees or, or anything else. So, so are you, you know, generally speaking, like, who are you serving? Are these elderly with diminished capacity or, or, or that plus other populations? What, what type of person hires you? Well, the majority of my clients, about 60% are seniors. Um, and that can be anywhere from 61, 62, as I said, up to the woman that was um, 106 when she passed. I also serve as court appointed. Um, so in the case of being court appointed, I can be power of attorney, I can be personal representative should somebody pass. Uh, and, and the majority of that work is conservatorship work where the person is incapacitated and therefore cannot make their own decisions. And in the eyes of the law, I come in to be that person to keep the financial stuff rolling and make sure the bills get paid and that they're paid ethically so that nothing's being paid um, where it shouldn't be. I, just as a minor example, I just took on a case and the daughter had been paying through mom's funds $100 to her niece every month. And I said to the daughter, I said, that can't continue anymore. Based on the amount of money that the woman has, I needed to keep it for her benefit rather than a gift to a niece. So anytime, you know, I look at any type of a professional has a fiduciary mm -hmm. exposure, but it sure would seem easy that maybe someone like yourself could, could, could charge double or triple what the, what the going rate is and not necessarily steal money, but maybe, maybe just bleed it for a little bit more than it's worth. Or maybe, you know, like you said, uh, you know, let a niece or, or, or somebody else maybe push business towards a, a colleague of yours. So ethically and everything, how does a client know that you or someone like you is, um, you know, just maintaining the highest ethical standards? Because it sounds like your clients, at least some of them, are the most vulnerable segment yes. of, of society. I mean, there's, and that's the reason why you are court appointed, right? Because right. they are vulnerable. So, you know, what guidelines and standards do you have to follow? Well, obviously, like most organizations, um, American Association of Daily Money Managers, and I'm just going to call it Adam from now on, um, that organization is, um, has its ethical standards. I also carry a fiduciary policy. Um, 
which protects both me and the client. A lot of people that are just doing bookkeeping type work carry errors and omissions. And errors and omissions says, if I make a mistake, you're covered. Fiduciary policy says that and fraudulent activity. So in that sense, I put myself in the category of attorneys and financial planners, where I am held to a much higher standard as to my ability and my guide of doing things that are to the best benefit of that person. And speaking to the hourly rate, that kind of thing, I hold myself at the same level as my peers um, doing similar work. I will say that when I am doing what is truly fiduciary work, meaning the person is incapacitated, I am charging by the hour because I have to. I have to be able to be accountable for everything that I do. When I'm doing private pay work, because I have a lot of clients, like someone with macular degeneration, she's got full capacity, she just can't see. And so in her case, I charge a flat fee so that we don't have to worry about that extra phone call to Amy on a Tuesday morning. Um, so we charge a flat fee based on what I'm doing every month for that person. But the fiduciary work, last week I sold a car. So it's very different than paying a utility bill. It can be a lot more. It is truly becoming that person. So did you negotiate the price and, and, and everything else with regard to that? Or, or what, I know you can't get into details, but was this, did you have total discretion or does this person have some capacity to, to offer some feedback? You know, when I'm doing things like selling a car, um, typically it's because the person can't drive anymore and that they are never going to drive again. I will go to a third party, and I'm not going to name names, but there are several in town that are known for giving a fair value. I'm not going to the little corner um, right. used car lot, mm -hmm. but I'm going to the credible ones that are known nationwide. And there really is no negotiating, which kind of says they're going to give me the right price. Right. Um, is that always true? Maybe not. But that's one way to do it. When I'm dealing with the sale of a house, um, because in the past year I've sold three houses and I've got another one going on the market. When I'm dealing with that, yes, I do have to take that higher level of discretion. If the individual, if I'm carrying a power of attorney on the individual and they've still got some capacity, I'm co communicating with them. They're helping me decide what real estate agent. They're helping me decide, do we leave the washer and dryer or do we sell it? They help me with those kinds of decisions when they're capable. And I try and treat every client that way. I want them as engaged and as they are capable. So this is, you know, it's really a fascinating uh, uh, position that you're holding. Do you find yourself having to, well, I guess you did with Denise, but probably some family conflicts and everything. Do you have to maybe unofficially mediate and, and, and even say, look, you know, your relative they may look like they have a never ending pool of money, but you know, they don't. So we have to watch what we're spending. Quite often I have to deal with that, whether it's fraud investigations. Um, I was on with a solicitor in another County this morning um, because of a power of attorney that had taken advantage of the client and we had to pull the power of attorney and I am now the power of attorney. I get involved in those levels of um, work with the legal system, not just the probate court. Um, another example, I had to have somebody evicted a little over a year ago. He was living in his mother's house and I needed to sell the house. She was out of money. 
And in order to continue to provide care for her, we needed to sell it. And, you know, I hate to do that, but my job is to support the client. Wow. Yeah, that is a tough position to be in. But again, if the mother simply did not have the income or the assets to live off of, then that's when difficult decisions need Mm -hmm. to be made. But with you as the third party, it makes, you know, maybe takes a little bit of the emotion out of it. Uh, whereas, you know, mothers and sons probably have, uh, <clears throat> you know, that would be a definitely emotional decision. So let's talk about some of the terms that you've mentioned. So what is a power of attorney? Okay. There are, there are really a couple of types of powers of attorney. The easiest one to separate off is the healthcare power of attorney. They make medical decisions if somebody becomes incapacitated. I don't do anything medical. I don't decide where somebody is placed. I don't decide any of that. I handle the financial side. So there's two other primary powers of attorney in the financial side. One is a springing power of attorney and the other is a durable power of attorney. A springing power of attorney says this person is incapacitated and two doctors have said that they cannot handle making their own financial decisions. The other is a durable power of attorney. And once that document exists and is registered, that document can come into play. Now, I tell my clients, if you don't need me yet, put it in a safe, tell me where it is, and when I get the phone call, I'll go get it and I can register it at that time. Because the durable is much more powerful in the sense that it is valid at the time it is signed, if, if it is in my hands, if that makes sense. One of my very first clients that had me become her durable power of attorney said to me, what are you going to do as my power of attorney? She was in a wheelchair. She was housebound. I said, I'm your legs. So I went to the bank for her. I got you know, other things for her. But she couldn't physically do things, but mentally she was fully capable. So I didn't take that away from her. I didn't, I didn't go underneath and, and pull the rug out. Um, I let her be as functional and capable as she could be. Now, does every power of attorney document, are they the same? Or maybe do you have limited authority in some cases? Um, some powers of attorney uh, give me the ability to pay the bills or give me the ability to sell assets if necessary, buy and sell assets if necessary. I've also got a mother-daughter client situation and the daughter is power of attorney for the mother. That particular power of attorney gives that daughter power to do anything for both the mother and for the daughter. Most powers of attorney and the ones I'm comfortable with are ones that say, The power of attorney, the person acting in that role, has to do everything for the benefit of the client and cannot do anything for the benefit of that power of attorney. So I, as power of attorney, can't go out and sell a car to my husband. That benefits me rather than the client. I mean, it it might break even, but it's just one of those lines I won't cross. So you mentioned trustee also. What is a trustee? A trust is in a sense, a person, because a trust holds money, um, and keeping it simple, let's talk about mm, the senior role rather than special needs trusts and things like that. But in the senior world, a trust exists to pass money on to the next generation, 
um, or to put money aside in order to qualify for Medicaid or aid in attendance with some delay. So those two types of trusts will outlive the individual. That trustee is accountable to the beneficiaries uh, rather than the individual. Some cases it is the individual, some cases it is not. I don't want to get into the weeds too far. But sure, the other but type a trustee has a high, high level of, of responsibility, correct? Correct, yes. And you know the other kind of trust that I mentioned, the special needs trusts, we've got a client who is, has a special needs trust. We literally take her grocery shopping every month because her social security payments pay for certain things and the trust pays for the dog food and the toilet paper. Wow. So she's not, she's capable of driving. She's raising her own children and all of that, but she is not her own trustee. So we have to go grocery shopping with her and we have two cards, one with- So you're separating funds for different Mm -hmm. items. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. So what about a conservator? What's a conservator? A conservator in my sense, um, the way I like to describe it is kind of, it's the power of attorney, but it's, it's on, it's not on steroids because in a sense of a power of attorney, there is literally no one looking over my shoulder on a daily basis. I don't have to write any reports to say this is how much I spent and why. Um, I don't have to do any of that. I will if somebody asks me to. But in the case of a conservatorship, I have to present a budget to the court. I have to do an inventory to start the conservatorship. I have to do an annual accounting. And anytime I need to spend money, for example, I can put in the budget that the utility bills are going to average $200 a month. And so I can write those checks without going back to the court to get approval for every Duke power bill. However, if they need a new roof on the house, I have to go to the court and get approval for the price of the new roof in advance of writing that check. So everything is in restricted accounts and I cannot touch that money even to pay myself without court approval. While necessary, that would be a pretty cumbersome process, right? Because it, it can be. You get pretty good at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I did I did four different clients' disbursements this morning, total of probably 22 checks. Um, you know, so you you got to get organized. You, this job, you have to be extremely organized. Well, that takes me out of, uh, out of doing your job. <laughs> Organization, uh, we all have our skills and abilities, and organization is one that I see, I see the importance of, but it, uh, it's a little bit difficult for me. So what would happen, let's say a single person who's 25, 30 years old, and they don't, they don't, have, they don't have a power of attorney, so they, they have a, an accident, and then they're incapacitated, and, and they don't, um, let's say they're, they're diminished mental capacity, and they do not have the ability to maybe comprehend bills and things like that. Mm-hmm how do you get involved there or does a, how would that work? Let's say, and let's say they have, they have some assets, you know, they have some financial assets that can help support them. And then social security disability income at some point will be kicking in. I mean, how, how do you get involved with that process? Um, in the case, in, in that exact scenario, I haven't had that exact scenario. I do have two people with traumatic brain injury um, who, you know, One is from having served in the armed forces. And so he gets a nice settlement from, you know, to supplement his pension. And and we work with that. 
um, his, he presents as a compulsive spender, so we have to protect him from himself. Um, if somebody, you know, I've got another case where it is a conservatorship, but I will tell you, they were in a motorcycle accident back in 2003. That conservatorship didn't get created like that. It takes time and it takes referrals from, you know, for me to be the person that gets involved, I have to have got a track record with um, the attorneys that are discussing how are we going to set this up. So, you know, being a conservator is, is pretty elite in the sense that there are very few of us that are doing this work um, in the upstate. There's only three, four, five of us that are getting any referrals with any regularity. Well, it seems like it, it's just such an in-depth process that I don't, it, would be, it, it would be hard to find someone who'd be willing to do it, quite frankly, with, with having to deal with the courts and, and figuring out the processes and the best ways to handle it, right? Well, yes. And as you said, the family dynamics come into play because sometimes, quite often, there are family members that in theory could do this work, but they may be out of state or they may themselves have a conflict of interest um, for whatever reason. Maybe it's the um, kind of work that they do um, because, you know, CPAs and CFPs, and they're limited on what kind of work they can do for non-family members. So that does come into play, but the, the personalities and the he said, she said really are, I should have gotten a psychology degree. You know, at any job, any position, you know, the, 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 the basic skills are the easy part. It's the managing people that can be the challenging part for sure. There's no, no question about that. Not, right. Not, and, it, you know, it, it's, it's hard. I had um, one woman, you know, just question what I'm doing and she's remote. And I'm like, that's great that you have all these suggestions, but you don't need to be sending kitty litter to your mother. I can take care of all of that and make sure it gets done um, because I can do it pretty efficiently. And I, I'm not trying to, to take her out of the mix, but I'm trying to allow those family relationships to be quality rather than, you know, and that's true with my private pay cases. Um, you know, if you aren't good with finances, delegate it. Mm -hmm. If you're better with, you know, other things, Delegate what you're not good at. And I especially tell that to people that are working with, you know, senior either parents is you don't have to do it all. You can hire somebody to do a lot of it. If the money. Well, yeah, well, and I think there's also a little bit of guilt if, if you're letting someone else care for, for your, for your parents, um, even if it's not where your unique skills and abilities lie. I do think there's some guilt. Uh, I, I spoke, I have the um, CLTC, the Certification in Long-Term Care designation, which helps people to plan and prepare for, for long-term care expenses, which, which can be quite significant. And one of the things that they stressed really, really, uh, really hard was that when you plan for the future uh, or when your parents have planned, all that's doing is giving their children the option of which care they're going to provide. 
So when there's mo money is nothing else than freedom and options. So if, if parents have money to pay for your services, cause I'm sure you don't work for free or to pay for a long, an assisted living facility, which isn't free. Um, that just gives the children maybe the, the freedom to, to provide the care that the parents want them to provide. And sometimes the personal care issues, the parents would much rather have, have a medical professional handle the hygiene type things. Okay you know, right. as opposed to their children. So if the money's there, that makes life easier for um, everybody. And often when there is money, and I'm sure you've probably seen this, uh, parents may not want their children to know all of their financial, um, their financial right. details. So, you know, having, having you as the, as the, uh, a little bit of a buffer there probably, because uh, some parents, you know, it may be both ends. It may be that they have more money than their kids think that they have, or it may be that they don't have as much money as their kids think that they have. Well, and, and we're still dealing with, you know, the, the depression era families. Um, mm -hmm. My mom, you know, she's 92. They, they never had money, but they didn't know they didn't have it. And right. so, you know, a lot of them still don't talk about money mm -hmm. and don't talk about what they have or don't have. But I would like to touch on another side of this. And that is the children who say, keep her at home it's too expensive to send her to a retirement community. And yet that should be the client's choice because the quality of life at a home by yourself, possibly with a caregiver three or four hours a day, does not, it, 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 for the same money, you could have somebody in a community um, greatly benefiting from the socialization. I have a good friend that runs an assisted living facility up here in Oconee County, and I've visited with him and thought of what you think assisted living is, is not really what it is. Right. They have activities. It's people who are, we all need, we need friends. We need companionship. And these are all people of the same relative age, same relative health, and they can relate. I can't relate with what it's like to be 85 years old and, and have trouble walking. But guess what? Someone else who is 85 years old can relate to that and they can support each other. So, so yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times people think the, the, the humane thing is, yes, stay at home, stay at home, stay at home. But I think that's without giving it a lot of thought and knowing what the options are. Well, and, and, but you're exactly right. But what I was getting at is the decision on whether to spend the money or not spend the money is not the child trying to save it for their retirement. Right, right, yeah. That's really, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah, because every dollar that's not spent is a potential uh, mm -hmm. inherited dollar, sure. Yep. So which say, we've, we've talked about a pretty broad range of services that you offer. Which, which, which service are you, I guess, the most effective at and, and enjoy the most? Well, I mean, I've got what I call the engine that's running, which is the private pay, um, where we're um, doing all the bill paying service. And we've, and I've been doing this for, you know, 10, 12 years, um, doing all the bill paying services, providing the monthly reports for the person that's gone through bankruptcy. Um, but I really like the unique stuff. Um, whether it's the conservatorship work where every day is different, um, I think I mentioned I was on the phone with a solicitor this morning. Um, you know, every, everything's different every time I do it. But if we just had one, she came to us and she said, I have a compulsive gambling problem. Okay. Wow. On the surface, that sounds, oh, that's not great. Well, it's due to the medication that she has to take for her restless leg syndrome. So she takes this medication that presents itself with compulsions and so in the middle of the night, she gets up and goes and gambles. 
So we had to get creative on how to protect her from her money. Wow. And she had, she had to agree to let us do that. And we are doing it. Um, she, uh, at this point, um, we pay all of her bills. And we're trying to get her to a point where we're saving some. But she, we blocked her uh, with her permission um, from most of her income and give her a weekly allowance. And she knows that's what she needs. Well, and those type of negative habits, they can, they can literally put you into homelessness unless there's someone like yourself or a family member who can protect them from, from themselves. So that's, yeah. a, that's a great, yeah. great thing. So, you know, coming up with the creative solutions and, and looking at where are you now and what do you, where do you want to be, um, we customize everything. Um, there are some services out there that say, here's your cookie cutter. This is the way your money has to be handled. We can't do that because to me, my service is to benefit the other person. So are you limited geographically, uh, you know, in today's world with laptops and electronic payments, or do you work mostly with local, local clients who, who you physically see in person? It frankly doesn't matter. Some clients do want to see me. I've got basically three that I see every month, although only two during the pandemic. I've had clients in Iowa that I never met. I've talked to them on the phone. Um, client in Minnesota, um, my mother in Pennsylvania. Are there licensing or, or does your certification hold true in every state? The certification holds true. And we're ultimately going to get it more nationally recognized as a more formalized certification. But the, the licensure... I work out of Greer, South Carolina. Gotcha. So whether I'm helping somebody in Arizona or Idaho, it doesn't matter. I work from here. And that's how I've always interpreted it. Mm-hmm. Well, Amy, I've, I've enjoyed this. This is a, a little bit of a different topic, but it seems very necessary. And it, it just seems like there's so many people out there that need your help and the help of someone like you to make sure that they're protecting themselves from even, even habits like gambling and, and making sure that all of their, their daily activities are taken care of and their financial responsibilities are taken care of. Really appreciate this. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Well, I am on the internet. I have a web page, and that is just carrotconsulting.com. And, that's okay, and we can put that in the show notes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, or they can call me. Um, and that cell phone number is on that website as well. Um, and I do typically do a one-hour consult for free. And part of that is they have to get to know me, and I have to get to know them to know whether I can help them. Absolutely. And, and you know what? Nobody can help everybody. And sometimes it's right. just not a right fit or, or, you know, it may be the rare occasion where you just don't have the skill set or, or capacity to help a specific right. type of a client for sure. Right. So, so lastly, before we close the show out, we're going to put you a little bit on the spot, but um, here at the Weekly Wealth Podcast, we are putting together um, a, a, a course on kind of how to avoid some of the five or six biggest financial mistakes that, that, that most people make. So without asking for too many details, um, what's one of the bigger mistakes, financial mistakes, or financial weaknesses that you have? Now, I could imagine yours is not going to be, I don't get around to paying my bills or balancing my checkbook. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and guess that you're pretty good at that. But what's one or two of your personal financial weaknesses or mistakes? 
I always like to try and turn it into a positive. There you go. Um, and I would tell you that first and foremost, um, one of my goals when I started doing this is to get to zero, where I owe nobody anything. And that has been a challenge over the years, partly because growing a business where nobody knows what you do takes longer than when I'm a dime a dozen. If everybody knows what I do, they may not choose me, but at least they know that the service exists. When I get some savings set aside, I, whether it's just in my head or on, you know, the actual spending it, I have a whole laundry list of places I want to spend it and things that I want to do. And is that healthy? Yeah, everybody's got their bucket list. But sometimes I wonder whether, you know, and I've got, the money stashed from a very nice income from prior careers. And I don't want to touch it at all. And that's really my goal. Um, I am in the point in my age, lifestyle, my husband's a little bit older than me, where we're working towards that slow down, how do you slow down? And I do find myself working more for not the paycheck, um, but the I want that, I want to be recognized for having done something good. Right. And I know that's not answering your question very well, um, but I don't honestly have too many bad habits other than mm -hmm. I like to buy clothes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, uh, maybe to paraphrase, you're you're maybe not sure how much to spend on on non necessities. You know, is is that? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that yeah. that's a hard one too, because, um, and that's you know where some budgeting and 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 uh, expense forecasting comes in. But, um, and, and not to plug, but you know sometimes a good financial planner can just give you permission to say, hey, you know what, everything's covered. You know this thing or this trip you can afford it. So go do right. it because nobody's right. going to live forever. And when it comes down to it, you know, when you're on your deathbed, you might say, I wish I went to that place or I wish right. I bought that thing, or I wish I would have given that gift away to that person that I care about. So, well, that's good. Well, most people have yeah. tremendous debt and horrible, horrible daily habits. So, um, but I, I was pretty sure with your career that that wouldn't be the case for you. So. It makes it harder to answer the question. Absolutely. No, that's a great thing. So, well, I've enjoyed speaking with you. This has been fascinating. We will put your contact information in the show notes okay. and um, anybody who has any questions um, and would even just like that, uh, that uh, in person, uh, well, the, uh, the phone call or, or zoom mm -hmm. call consultation with you. Uh, we hope they'll take advantage of that. So until next time, we, uh, we wish you good luck and have a great week. All right. Thank you. The information contained herein, including but not limited to research, market valuations, calculations, estimates, and other material obtained from Parallel Financial and other sources are believed to be reliable. However, Parallel Financial does not warrant its accuracy or completedness. The materials are provided for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. Past performance is not indicative of future results.